from VOA Press Conference USA. Here is your host, Carol Castiel. Welcome to Press Conference USA on The Voice of America. In this year-end edition of the program, we bring you highlights from 2021. Hello, I'm Rick Pantaleo for Carol Castiel. On April 10th, Press Conference USA featured special guest General David Petraeus, a retired U.S. Army general and former director of the CIA. General Petraeus served over 37 years in the U.S. military, culminating his career with six consecutive commands, five of which were in combat, including command of the surge in Iraq, command of U.S. Central Command, and command of coalition forces in Afghanistan. He is currently a partner at KKR, a leading global investment firm, where he chairs the firm's Global Institute. When Carol Castiel asked what he thought of President Joe Biden's foreign policy three months into his administration, Petraeus responded. And I think it is very appropriate that as the United States pursues foreign policy at home by shoring up its domestic foundations for national power, combating the pandemic, spurring the economic recovery, addressing infrastructure needs and bringing the country together to the extent that that is possible. All of that being critically important to the approach to the world, I think off to quite an impressive start, noting, of course, that you already have cases where campaign rhetoric is colliding with reality. And as we'll discuss, of course, the situation in Afghanistan is one such case. But that is always the situation for any new administration, noting that we're still very much at the general stages of policy formulation and declaration. It's when it gets into the details that the decisions become really most difficult. Noting, though, that some have already been established in certain respects, the approach toward China, the approach toward allies, rejoining the Paris Climate Accord, returning to the World Health Organization, and above all, trying to seek multilateral international solutions as much as is possible, particularly given how important that is in time of a pandemic when no one of us is safe unless all of us are safe. That was General David Petraeus. Carol made several virtual visits to the U.S. Capitol in 2021 to speak with members of Congress. Democratic Congressman Ted Lieu of California appeared on our May 29th program. Just three days earlier, on May 26th, a mass shooting at a Santa Clara Valley Transportation Authority rail yard in San Jose, California, killed nine people before the gunman killed himself. Congressman Lou shared his thoughts about the mass shooting and if he thought it would be an impetus to pass gun control legislation. My heart goes out to the victims and the families of yet another mass shooting. And this is uniquely an American problem. There are lots of folks all over the world that get very angry and do violence. But only in America do they have such easy accessibility to firearms that can kill a lot of people very quickly. The House of Representatives has passed gun safety legislation to the Senate. It's time for the Senate to act. We can't keep doing the same thing over and over again and expect a different result. We've got to change the status quo. One way to do that is to change the laws that we currently have. And again, I urge the U.S. Senate to act. The congressman commented on reports in May of anti-Semitic attacks across the U.S. in the wake of recent Gaza-Israel violence, providing another example of scapegoating people. We have to condemn hate wherever it occurs, 
And you have a very good point. There is a certain kind of discrimination that Asian Americans and Jewish Americans have encountered, something I call the foreigner syndrome, where when someone looks at us, they think we're not American, that we have dual loyalties to another country. In my own district, we recently had an attack against Jewish Americans, and I've condemned that attack, and we need to stand up and fight back against hate, whoever it may occur. And it's very important that we get additional hate crimes legislation signed into law. I'm very pleased that President Biden already signed one of them, the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act, which even though it originated as a result of the violence against Asian Americans, many of the provisions apply to all hate crimes, including hate crimes against Jewish Americans or any other ethnic group or hate crime based on religion or any other protected class. Representative Liu also shared his views on voting rights and his concerns about numerous attempts by mostly Republican state legislatures throughout the U.S. to enact more restrictive voting laws. One of the reasons the January 6th insurrection happened was because of the big lie. It's the lie that somehow the former president won the election, that this election was stolen. And not only is it the big lie, it's a remarkably stupid lie. Even now, Republicans can't identify who actually stole the election. Was it Hugo Chavez, as the former president's attorneys claimed? By the way, as all of you know, Hugo Chavez has been dead for many years. Or was it Dominion Voting Machines, as some outlets like Newsmax has claimed? By the way, Dominion Voting Machines is now making a lot of money settling lawsuits for all these folks defaming their good name. Was it voters standing in line who got water? Republicans can't identify who stole this election because no one did. Joe Biden won the election. He won the popular vote. He won the Electoral College. It wasn't close. So this is a remarkably stupid lie. And at the end of the day, I also want people to think about this. Republican members of Congress were all on the exact same ballot. If they thought this election was fraudulent, then what they should do is resign because they shouldn't be in office if they really truly believe that their own election was also fraudulent. Now, in terms of voter suppression, unfortunately, Republicans are now using the big lie to then try to pass bills that suppress the ability of people to vote. We are, I think, the only democracy in the world that tries to make it even harder for people to vote. We should make it easier for people to vote. Unfortunately, you see a lot of these laws being passed by Republicans and these legislatures that have really no relation to voter security. So, for example, they have literally criminalized giving water to voters standing in line. So if you're a voter standing in line for hours, you're not going to alter your vote because someone gave you a bottle of water. By the way, your vote is also private. No one even knows how you vote in that voting booth. So that provision is not only ludicrous, it's simply designed to leverage thirst so that a voter standing along voter line who doesn't have water might just not vote because they're thirsty. It is insane. It's anti-American. They've also put in provisions that make it harder to vote by mail. They put in provisions that effectively allow the state legislature simply reverse the outcome of electoral results they don't like. So this is deeply problematic. The House of Representatives has passed H.R. 1. We called it H.R. 1 because we believe it's the most important bill. It does three things. It will protect voting rights. It has significant campaign finance reform and has anti-corruption provisions. I urge the U.S. Senate to also pass H.R. 1. That was Democratic Congressman Ted Lieu of California.
when Republican Representative John Curtis of Utah returned to our VOA microphones on July 3rd, he expressed a different view on voting rights. Carroll asked him if he was concerned about a trend of Republican-led states enacting restrictive voting laws. Well, I think it depends uh, on your definition of restrictive. I know, for instance, many states, Delaware is an example that's been used, have more restrictive laws than Georgia, and I think there's a lot of hypocrisy in pointing the finger there. This is the fact. The Constitution gives states the rights to oversee their elections. The federal government should not be meddling in the state's business. Now, what does that mean? That means there are some states that are going to be far more liberal than I would like. It also means there's going to be some states that are going to be more conservative than many people like. That's the beauty of the Constitution, and it's the beauty of states. And it's just wrong for the federal government to intercede into that. And particularly when you're saying, okay, well, one party that dominates gets to make all the rules. Well, it should have surprised anybody that the other party feels like there'll be unfair rules. That's the beauty of the states doing this, and it represents those people. Now, if they step across the lines, that's what the court's for. We know that the attorney general is going to sue Georgia. Let's see how that plays out in the courts. But short of that, it's the state's prerogative to do what they want, whether or not I like it or not. I do take your point, Congressman Curtis, but some critics would say that the fact that many of these states have enacted stricter voting laws that do seem to disproportionately affect African-Americans and other minorities, they're saying that they were premised on the so-called big lie, that there was somehow fraud in the 2020 election. Of course, former President Trump perpetuated that lie, and I think that's probably the crux of the problem. I agree with you. It has been very unhealthy the way the election results have been um, questioned. I was one of the first Republicans to actually congratulate President Biden. Let me be clear about that. But there is a lot of doubt in people's minds about the viability of our election system. And we should applaud states who are trying to make their elections more credible. Congressman Curtis created the Bipartisan Climate Caucus in the House of Representatives. And he attended COP26 in Glasgow. Here's what he had to say about climate change and what prompted him to create a separate conservative climate caucus. Republicans have allowed ourselves, by our silence, to be branded as not caring about the environment. And to be frank, I don't think we have spent enough time educating Republican members of Congress talking about these issues and our solutions. And so therefore, while I think a bipartisan group is extremely important, I also think a partisan group of Republicans, meaning that they're just Republicans, is very, very healthy to a broader dialogue because we have been missing from the dialogue. We need to start with some real basics about our ideas and our solutions. And so we can bring those forward to the bipartisan group. And instead of coming with just democratic ideas, which we normally oppose, bring ideas of our own. Carol then asked him how those ideas to reduce greenhouse gas emissions differ from Democratic proposals of phasing out coal and fossil fuels. Congressman Curtis talked about direct air capture, carbon sequestration, and nuclear and even natural gas. So frequently things like carbon sequestration and direct air capture or kind of poopod is not realistic. But I would counter that with saying, look, if we're going to reduce worldwide greenhouse gas emissions, and you got to remember the United States is only less than 15% of worldwide greenhouse gas emissions, we have to have ideas here that deal with the vast amounts of greenhouse gas emissions coming out of China and India and Russia. And I don't know how you do that if you're not using something like direct air capture and carbon sequestration. So we'd like to see greater investment into that. 
I'd like to see those ideas mature and see what they can do. I think you're fooling yourselves if we don't bring in nuclear into this conversation. And I'm fine with those who have opposition to certain the nuclear problems. I don't think we need to assume that nuclear always has to be what it's been. I think we can aspire to the next generation nuclear and solve some of the concerns that people have with nuclear power. But let's face it, right now, nuclear is 20% of our energy capacity. By the time President Biden wants to be at half of our current output on greenhouse gas emissions, we're going to cut nuclear in half, and we need to be going the opposite direction. And then one that really surprises people that I think we need to think about is this concept of using fossil fuels to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. It's no secret that we've reduced more greenhouse gas emissions here in the United States than the next 10 carbon-reducing countries combined. How have we done it? We've done it with natural gas. So if China and Russia and India are going to continue to be large coal-burning nations, why not step up and say, let's use U.S. natural gas to lower their greenhouse gas emissions? Those ideas have not really been on the table. They haven't been discussed and debated. And those are just some of the ideas that you'll hear coming from this group. That was Republican Representative John Curtis of Utah. On the August 14th edition of our program, Carol Castiel spoke with veteran AIDS activist, journalist, and historian Emily Bass about her new book, To End a Plague, America's Fight to Defeat AIDS in Africa. Ms. Bass talked about the genesis and impact of PEPFAR, the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, created by former President George W. Bush, its positive impact on Africa, and challenges that remain in light of the coronavirus pandemic. Emily Bass described the significance of PEPFAR and why it became such a game-changer for the continent. So at the moment that PEPFAR launches, fewer than 50,000 people living with HIV in Africa have access to antiretrovirals, and there are millions who need it. And what is missing at the time in most of those countries is a healthcare system that can deliver medications to adults that is a lifelong course of medication. So sort of the public health parlance would be sort of adult ambulatory care. You walk in, you get your drugs, you leave, you're regularly monitored. In impoverished nations and in low-income settings, there's childhood immunization programs, there's maternal health. If you're lucky, there may be some hospital services. But the idea of having a functioning health system that is treating people with a chronic condition is still very, very far out of reach and sadly, tragically still far out of reach um, in many places to this day. But when the world, and it is Bush, it is also the activists and the physicians and the people with HIV who impelled visible power, right? The government, you know, is sort of a seat of visible power, impelled action by proving that it was possible to treat poor people in poor countries with low-tech approaches. So the proof is there, and that's what Dr. Diebel and Dr. Fauci draw on from these sort of pilot cases and these small programs. So Paul Farmer is doing one in Haiti and Peter Mugeni is doing one in Uganda and Jean Pop is doing one in Haiti. And all of those physicians I named are called in to advise actually at critical moments before the launch of PEPFAR. But these are small programs. And the question still is, how do you build this at scale? How do you build an ambulatory care program for millions of people who need regular refills of medications? How do you build a supply chain system? How do you train the physicians? How do you get the drugs where they need to be and the tests and the diagnostics? And I have described this effort as a moonshot, and it's been interesting the reactions that that provokes, right? Is that grandiose? Is that jingoistic? I think we are also battered by the immense failures around COVID in the prior administration and the destruction and degradation of 
trust in American government and American government's relationship to public health in the Trump administration, that it's hard to conceptualize that this really was in terms of the technical scale and the scope and the array of people and the problems that had to be solved, bringing HIV treatment to scale in low and middle income countries, particularly in East and Southern Africa, was a truly moonshot-esque endeavor. It didn't mean building a high-tech rocket. It meant finding low-tech community-derived solutions. But in terms of the value of those and the intelligence and the wisdom and the technical pieces that had to be figured out, it was monumental. That was veteran AIDS activist, journalist, and historian Emily Bass. Her book is called To End the Plague, America's Fight to Defeat AIDS in Africa. Let's take a break now. You're listening to the best of Press Conference USA 2021 on The Voice of America. I'm Rick Pantaleo for Carol Castiel. Here's a reminder that Press Conference USA is available for free download from our website, voanews.com slash PCUSA, and many streaming services such as Apple Podcasts. We also hope you'll get in touch with us through Facebook at VOA Current Affairs and Facebook and Twitter at Carol Castiel VOA, or by sending us an email to PCUSA at voanews.com. Let's get back to today's press conference USA featuring highlights of the program over the past year. According to a report from Reuters, Tunisia faced its worst crisis in a decade of democracy on July 26th after President Kaid Syed announced that he will assume executive authority in the country after ousting government and suspending parliament with help from the army. The country's main parties denounced the actions as a coup. Tunisia expert Amy Hawthorne, Deputy Director for Research at the Project on Middle East Democracy, joined host Carol Castiel on August 21st to discuss the crisis in the North African nation. Ms. Hawthorne explained how this deviation from Tunisia's democratic path came about. There does appear to be strong popular support for President Saeed's moves on July 25th to basically, some has described his moves as a self-coup, to seize power and concentrate all powers of government in his hands and to rule according to these sort of exceptional powers that he's given himself, he says, aligned with the Tunisian constitution. So there does seem to be strong popular support for what he has done to basically shake up the scene push out or marginalize widely seen as ineffective, some seen as corrupt political elite, business leaders, and to really perhaps reset the Tunisian political system in a way that will work better for most Tunisians who have really been suffering economically and during this COVID-19 pandemic. So support for him seems to remain very strong. However, expectations on the ground among Tunisians, from what I'm hearing, also appear to be sky high. Many viewing President Syed as a savior, someone who can sweep in and fix all of these complicated problems, socioeconomic problems, corruption, political dysfunction, economic decline that Tunisia has been struggling with for many, many years. Expectations of him are so high, and perhaps unrealistically so, 
That leads me to a third observation about the state of play. It's very unclear to all Tunisians to whom I've been speaking regularly what Paisayed's plans are. What is his vision for Tunisia? How is he going to remake or how does he want the Tunisian political system to be remade? Importantly, how does he believe that Tunisia's economic crisis can be fixed? What are his plans for returning the frozen parliament, letting it resume activity? How exactly is he going to fight corruption? There seems to be a scarcity of details. Certainly the roadmap that President Saeed promised on July 25th would be coming out soon has not appeared. The government isn't functioning normally. There isn't even a full government in place. So there's high expectations, strong support, but an increasing concern among some, perhaps a minority, what exactly are his plans? Does he have a plan? What is his vision? And so it looks like there is a huge amount of uncertainty and opacity about the situation, at least in the presidential palace in Carthage. Amy Hawthorne saw some promising reaction from the Biden administration to the setback for democracy in Tunisia. In terms of the U.S. and European response to high society's moves since July 25th, the United States has actually shown a fair amount of concern and a fair amount of high-level interest in what's going on in Tunisia. Within days, we had Secretary of State Antony Blinken calling President Kaisasayed and having a long conversation with him about the need to sort of protect Tunisia's democracy and end this exceptional period of rule as quickly as possible. Then after that, we saw National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan also call Kaisa Syed and maybe deliver the same message, but perhaps a bit more sharply. And we've seen the number two person, Jake Sullivan's deputy at the National Security Council, John Finer, and the Assistant Secretary of State for NEA, Joey Hood, travel to Tunisia and visit with President Syed and other actors in Tunisia. So these are very, very busy people, mm. and there's a lot of crises going on in the world. And I give them credit. I give the Biden administration credit for showing some fair amount of concern about right. what's going on in Tunisia. With regard to Europe, the reaction has been a little more cautious, a little more wait and see. They're taking a less urgent approach, I would say, than the U.S. So there's a bit of divergence there in the response from the U.S. and from Europe. That was Amy Hawthorne, Deputy Director for Research at the Project on Middle East Democracy. On the September 25th edition of Press Conference USA, Carol's guest was Mona Yacobian. She is Senior Advisor to the Vice President of Middle East and Africa at the U.S. Institute of Peace. 20 years after 9-11, and just as the U.S. withdrew all its troops from Afghanistan, Ms. Yakubian says it's high time to prioritize diplomacy and development over the military. She advocates a whole-government approach. I think 9-11 really heralded this new era of complex, unconventional challenges that are dynamic, evolving, transnational, unpredictable, and that given that complexity and given the interdependence of the world that we live in today, that it's essential that we address these challenges using all elements of U.S. power, not just military force, which really, I think in many ways, 
characterized the last 20 years and certainly our response to 9-11 and the launching of these so-called, you know, forever wars. Carol spoke to Ms. Jacobian after President Biden addressed the United Nations General Assembly and after the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. First, I would like to underscore just how important President Biden's speech was. He sounded uh, many of the themes that certainly I raised, obviously, with the benefit of his staff and deep, deep thinking, I'm sure that's gone on. There were certain phrases, and you've noted them, they certainly stuck out to me as well, the notion of relentless diplomacy and military strength as the tool of last resort, not first. He talks a lot about the complexity of the challenges we face. He underscores the interdependence of the world that we live in. He pledges to double down on diplomacy. So absolutely, yes, yes, yes. But as you point out, and I think this is something that the foreign policy community has struggled with and is going to continue to struggle with, and that is it's one thing to talk about the need to lead with diplomacy, peacebuilding, development. And it's another entirely to actually implement that approach. As they say, the devil is in the details. In my piece, I talk about the fact that we have so much work ahead of us in terms of first properly aligning these diplomacy and development with defense, properly resourcing it. And I would think in some ways the most challenging aspect of it is developing new and innovative tools to meet these 21st century challenges. We have a long, long way to go. We don't yet have those tools. I would argue we're still very much postured, honestly, for 20th century challenges. We have yet to fully upgrade our diplomatic toolkit, our development toolkit, state and USAID. They really require a great deal of upgrading and rejuvenating in order to sort of more appropriately meet these very, very complex challenges, which, in my view, are only going to multiply in the years to come. That was Mona Yacoubian, senior advisor to the vice president of Middle East and Africa at the U.S. Institute of Peace. I host the monthly science edition of Press Conference USA. In February, I hosted Seth Shostak, senior astronomer at the SETI Institute in Pasadena, California. We talked about the SETI Institute's mission of searching for signs of extraterrestrial intelligence in the cosmos. I asked him how he defines extraterrestrial intelligence. Well, our definition of intelligence is very simple. If you can build a radio transmitter, then you're intelligent. So I asked my neighbors routinely, hey, can you build a radio transmitter? And most of them say no, but I, I, I still treat them as if they are intelligent. But It just means that they have enough smarts to be able to understand physics, to do engineering, to build big transmitters that could generate signals that we can pick up so that we know they're there. That's it. In 1961, Dr. Frank Drake, considered the father of the modern search for extraterrestrial intelligence, developed an equation to calculate the number of extraterrestrial intelligent civilizations that existed in the Milky Way. It became known as the Drake Equation. Seth Shostak explains. It came about this way. Frank did this experiment, as we just described. That was in 1960, and it generated a lot of interest. There were big articles in Collier's Magazine, which was one of the more popular magazines at the time. And so he was encouraged to have a meeting to discuss this whole idea that you might be able to find the aliens with a big antenna. 
And so the next year, 1961, he scheduled a meeting. There were about 12 or 13 people in attendance. These are all very smart people, physicists, astronomers, whatever. And Frank was thinking, well, I'm going to have this meeting next week. I need an agenda. So he came up with this equation, which is now known as the Drake equation, in which he tried to estimate, well, how many societies are out there right now that are broadcasting signals we might pick up right now, okay? And it just depends on, well, how many stars are out there and what fraction of the stars have planets and what fraction of those planets are the kind where ET might want to live and that sort of stuff. So that became known as the Drake equation. And by the way, it's often said to be the second most famous equation in all of science after E equals MC squared from Einstein. I asked Dr. Shostek to tell us how SETI searches were conducted in the past and how are they done today? Actually, it's done very similarly to what Frank Drake did in 1960, except that the equipment, of course, is far, far better. But, you know, the basic idea is the same. You point your antennas, and the bigger the antenna, the better. Bigger really is better, because if it's bigger, it can pick up fainter signals, and, you know, the aliens are going to be far away, so being able to pick up something faint is a good deal. So you point them in the direction of these nearby star systems, and you just listen to as much of the radio dial as you can, looking for signals that are what are called narrow band. Now, that's a technical term, but it just means that the signal is at one spot on the radio dial, not all over the dial, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody tunes in their favorite radio station, well, it's at 740 kilohertz or 1500 kilohertz, whatever it is. It's at some spot on the dial. So if you find a signal like that, and you say, well, I don't know what it is, but it's made by a transmitter, and so that's what we essentially do. That was Dr. Seth Shostek, senior astronomer at the SETI Institute in Pasadena, California. And that's Press Conference USA's look back at 2021. I'm Rick Pantaleo for Carol Castiel. From all of us at the Current Affairs Programming Desk at VOA, here's wishing you a very healthy and happy new year. Thanks for listening today. And please join Carol Castiel next week for another Press Conference USA on The Voice of America.